On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today, we are speaking with Jean Hab Korlitz, who was born and raised in New York City. She is the author of six previous novels, including You Should Have Known, which was recently adapted for HBO as The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman, and Admission, starring Tina Fey. She is also the author of A Middle Grade Reader and a collection of poetry. Her latest novel, The Plot, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. On this podcast, we focus on women in popular fiction. So at first blush, it might look like the plot is not a great fit for us because the story follows Jacob Finch Bonner and his apparent antagonist, Evan Parker, two men. But you also masterfully weave in the story of two women, a mother and a daughter, who are the characters in Jake's runaway hit novel. And these storylines all merge by the end and no one's hands are clean. <laughs> I like Tell that. us a little bit about the plot. This is actually my first male protagonist. So seven novels in to finally get to a male protagonist is something I could be inversely proud of in a weird sure. way. It was a, a challenge to write about a man. I mean, I'm not a man and I've never been a man. I also care less about men, to be quite honest, but <laughs> I never considered making this character female because I think part of Jake's problem is that he has a kind of innate entitlement that if he does the work, which he does, you know, he's he's not slacked off as a writer. He's done his diligence. He's put in the, the 10,000 plus hours that he deserves to be successful. And I think that's something that men still have that women still do not have. So I, it never occurred to me to make him a woman. But I, it was a lot of fun to write him because the space between any writer and failure is hair thin. <laughs> Doesn't matter where we are in our careers, in our minds, we're all failures. And it is so easy to access that, the memory of that and the fear of that. So we're all Jake. He's right. all of us. <laughs> so at what point did you realize that you had to write excerpts from a crib and oh. the story of Samantha and Maria? Yeah, it's that's such a great question because... Because I really didn't want to do it because it was Ooh. hard. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was in the middle of the book and I was listening to an interview with Lily King on another podcast. And she also had just published a novel, Writers and Lovers, which was about a writer. And somebody said to her in the Q&A, did you feel like you should be writing excerpts of the novel? And she said, well, I, I always knew that nothing I wrote could live up to the hype that I was creating in this book about this novel. So I just didn't do it. And I thought, oh, good. I don't have to do it either. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I submitted the first draft of the book to my editor without any excerpts from Crib. And she said, uh, no, <laughs> you have to write these. <laughs> so I had to go back and, and write these. And then I kind of filleted the novel and insert it, you know, like Julia Child sticking in garlic cloves <laughs> along the way. I didn't want to do it for exactly that reason. I was afraid that people would read the excerpts and say, this is a massive bestseller. How can you live up to that? 
But I'm encouraged by some of the early reviews where people said that they love reading the excerpts and that it does work and it does kind of nudge Jake's story along the little bits that you learn about what he's written. It was incredibly impressive. I loved this book so much. Thank you so much. It really breaks a lot of molds. And for a well-worn genre, I found myself surprised often. And one of the things I was really surprised at was that I was equally invested in both storylines. And I don't know how you did that. That was... I don't know how I did it Reluctantly, <laughs> apparently, that's how you did it. Well, yeah. there, there was a point last winter when I went wrong in the writing of the book. Things were happening too quickly. They were happening in the wrong order. And this was before I'd even added the excerpts of Jake's novel. And I had to very painfully go back and pull things apart and put them together again. There's a, a whole middle section of the book when time has to pass for a number of reasons, <laughs> primarily because Jake is writing a novel and that takes time. And we also want his relationship with the woman that he marries to not happen immediately. And yet there's this campaign against him that's this harassment that's happening online. It was very hard to get all that right. And I had to take several runs at it, but I I hope it's right now. It's like building a Jenga tower. Every piece has to be there for a reason. There can't be any filler. There can't be any lethargy. It's very difficult. This is the sort of thing that once you've done, you think, oh my God, how did I do that? Never mind. I can never do it again. Right. Right. Yeah, that's why I said it breaks the mold in so many ways. And it's really exceptional, really. I, you, you pulled it off. I cannot wait for everyone to be reading it and for you to get that feedback because I'm certain that's what's coming your way. Well, I mean, it, it's a kind of uh, received wisdom that readers do not like to read about writers. I mean, and mm. I, I heard this as I was writing. People were saying, oh, a book about a writer who wants to read that. But I don't know. I love reading books about writers. Um, yeah. And again, I'm cheered by reading some of the early responses that, oh, I love books about books. In an interview, you once said you write strong women, complicated, essentially unhappy, who face extreme circumstances that require them to reconsider everything about their lives and their decisions. Clearly, this is a preoccupation for me. And it was only with this most recent novel that I had even recognized the pattern. I believe that was the the Devlin Webster, probably. I don't think I can explain it to anyone's satisfaction, including my own, you went on to say. But in general, I think it has much to do with the position of women in this country over the past half century, how feminism has changed us and our landscape, our relationships with men and work and children. Wow. I said that. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. (laughs) We do too. And it's frankly, it's, it's the very concept behind this podcast. We are always trying to give life to all the ways women are complicated because it's not even just one way that we have variations. We give weight to common experiences, but all also account for that we're all different as well. So the plot may have a male protagonist as we've talked about it, but it really lands firmly in your stated pattern. Do you have more thoughts on this preoccupation of yours at this point? I might have some more thoughts. I mean, it's worth pointing out that I grew up in a fairly liberal, am I talking about fairly liberal, an extremely liberal milieu. I went to an ethical culture school. We were feminists before I knew what the word meant, probably before I'd even heard the word. And then I went from there straight into a very backward-looking college environment at Dartmouth in the 1980s, cradle of the Dartmouth Review, which gave us Dinesh D'Souza, the gift that keeps on giving, and and a lot of other neocon 
Barnes, Laura Ingraham, so you're behind me. And it was a shock. It was like, it was, it was sort of like going right into a cold, icy bath. And I've always been historically minded. So I understood where I arrived on the continuum of culture that was Dartmouth College in the 1980s. I knew that the college had resisted co-education. I knew that it had the, the lowest percentage of Jews in the Ivy League, for example. And when I got there, I looked around me and I saw all my classmates were, you know, very ambitious for themselves. They were going to be lawyers and doctors and CEOs, and none of them would call themselves feminists. It was so baffling to me. I would try to say, don't you know why you're here? You're here because women raised hell. And you want to be here because you want to go to Harvard Medical School and run for president. Why can't you express gratitude to, oh, but I like men, you know, but I shave my underarms. You know, it's just absurd. So, I mean, this duality, this kind of incongruity stayed with, always stayed with me because I like men too. I've been married to one for a long time. I have one as a child. (laughs) I, I, I like men. Yeah. I love women. Right. <laughs> I like men. And even moving forward, even going back to reunions, when all these women had become CEOs and doctors and lawyers and mothers, a lot of them still wouldn't call themselves feminists. So I guess that's something, that's a, a crevasse that I have explored again and again in my work, perhaps most pointedly with, you know, you should have known with The Devil and Webster, which is about a feminist scholar who becomes a college president and is suddenly the person people are protesting against. But and I'm sure you've heard this from many other writers, but we don't always understand our work as we're doing it. Sometimes we understand it looking backwards, like that famous Kierkegaard quote, life can only be understood backwards. Now, when I look back at seven novels and a couple that weren't published, I see the connective tissue that I did not see when I was in it. No, we We've have heard, heard that, that quite, so a, many. quite a bit. Yeah, that, that even each individual book, as you're talking about it and other people are picking out what they loved or what they were drawn to, you start to see more connections than you did when you're in the process. Well, it's always been true that, you know, you, you read a review of your book or somebody tells you what their, your book is about and you kind of go, oh my God, yeah, I didn't realize exactly. that. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> Uh, so you wrote in your acknowledgments that writers are a lucky lot because they they are because they get to frolic in stories and language you said begged borrowed adapted embroidered perhaps even stolen it's all part of a grand conversation so can you talk more either about the grand conversation or the ones that you started on twitter under the hashtag the plot book Oh, right. Well, that, you know, credit where it's due, the credit for that goes to the remarkable people at Celadon who think these things up. But I'm in a house of writers here. My husband is a writer. My son's a writer. My daughter's a writer, although she's not under this roof at the moment. We have always felt that every work of art is in conversation with every other work of art, whether the creator is aware of it or not they shouldn't necessarily be aware of it. It's the one thing that all great writers have in common is that they're readers. And we start reading, hopefully young, so we can get more in. (laughs) But all of those ideas, the songs we've heard, the movies we've seen, the Disney movies we've seen, you know, uh, it's all in this great cement mixer in our heads. And it's all mushing around constantly. And when the writing happens or the composing happens or the drawing happens or whatever 
the creative act is, all of that is still in there and it comes out. It may come out looking completely different, but to try to go back and separate the origins of these ideas is not only a pointless task, it's almost a a negating task because the point is that we are the sum of all of these things. It could be something we overheard in the checkout line. It could be something that we saw in Bambi, a moment from Bambi, you know, which was the first movie I ever saw. But to make something personal, not necessarily original, but personal and unique out of all of the stuff is the point of what we do as artists. And to sort of put your foot down and say, this is mine. It's like stepping into a river and saying, this is mine. Sure. It's not yeah. yours. Right. You know, you know, the plot is my novel. I wrote it. I wrote every word of it. And yet the ideas of it are not original. Writers in particular have been obsessed with plagiarism, with these worries about inauthenticity and worries that they have purloined an idea or a line or an archetype. Maybe Homer didn't worry about it, but maybe he did, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you can draw a line from Homer to Ulysses, to James Joyce's Ulysses, to Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain. Nobody would say to Charles Fraser, this book isn't yours, you stole it from Homer. It's in conversation with Homer. It's in conversation with James Joyce, who's in conversation with Homer. So this is the daisy chain of influence and ideas and imagination and inspiration. Again, as I pointed out in the book, is not a word that writers tend to use. I don't use it. But we're all mucking around in these stories and the great river of stories. And I think it's a joyful thing. It's a privilege to muck around in other people's stories. <laughs> I love when you put it as in conversation with and this whole idea that it's all in your head and it's a, a great cement mixer. I do love that. Sure. Oh. And there's also value in reading a book that fails. You know, mm. you could, we learn from having, oh my God, I just, I attempted yesterday attempted is the word to read Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal. I mean, which is, I guess, about a woman and all of her thoughts written by a misogynistic gay man. <laughs> I didn't learn that much about right, um, right. about what it must have been like to be a woman. But right. I, basically, I think that whole novel is kind of a big fuck you to the publishing world. But I learned from the failure. I mean, I, I always... People say, what, I want to be a writer. What's your advice? And they're always expecting me to say, write. That's not the answer. The answer is read. And I always say read bad books too, because if you only read good books, you don't see the contrast. I have read so much junk in my life with great pleasure. But if you don't read the, the crap, you don't appreciate it when it's not crap. And so I think this, by the same token, if you read badly done books, you learn that they're badly done. We talk about that on this podcast all the time, just watching different shows, reading different books where it'll speak to Kate, but doesn't speak to me or speaks to me and doesn't speak to Kate. So the diversity of experiences, you know, across the board, I think it has value just taking into account the point of view, I guess, as well. How do you choose the books that you do for your podcast? It is not a scientific process. It is one part my interest, one part her interest, and then like a third magical piece that comes in. Something strikes us or someone we like recommends something. And we wish we're so much other content we wish we could cover and we just don't. Mm. Well, I listened to your thing about a Hamilton. I thought it was great oh thank you oh yeah and that was a little outside the box of our normal criteria i was going to add to what corinne said at least with the tv and movies we do have 
somewhat more set criteria because it has to be written or directed by a woman and starring a woman. So with books, though, I mean, we only really do ones written by women. So yeah, we're always just trying to to point out the female perspective in a different way. I was lucky enough to see a workshop performance of Hamilton. I think I saw the second one and the third one. I didn't see the first one because my best friend is married to the guy who runs the public theater. Oh, so that's where it started. Yes. She said, you should come see this thing. I I think it's going to be really interesting. And I said, sure. And I was late getting there because there was the subway was slow or something. And and I was I arrived in this kind of lather. I didn't know anything about what I was about to see. And I I sat down and I turned to the person next to me who turned out to be Ron Chernow, who wrote the Oh, my God. Oh, no wow. I said, OK, well, what is this? What, what are we oh. going to see here? And he said, well, this is a rap and hip hop musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And I swear to God, I almost left. Right. Because right. I don't love rap and I right. have no feelings about and but from the very first moment, I was mesmerized. And I remember being in the bathroom during the intermission and just gasping because like, I just what I, is happening what? Well, I've never <laughs> yes. seen anything like this yeah exactly yeah yeah it really was very I special. saw it the first week it opened too through my law firm again we try to pick whatever's supposed to be hot in the summer but it I too we knew nothing you know we just had heard what we heard from the reviews at the public and I had no idea walking into it either same thing I'm walking there I'm like what what is this we're seeing what are we rap and hip-hop musical about yes, American yeah. revolution I was like, no oh, thank you but it's same thing yeah. then I was like I this is like nothing I have ever seen before and oh amazing I didn't get a lot of the rap references I got all the musical theater references but I mean that is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier because I mean that is a guy who just spent years cramming everything in there the high the low everything in between and when that thing came out of him it came out with the rap the musical theater the history the you know everything came out of that cement mixer inside Mm. of his head so Mm -hmm. and he did take entire lines from songs and i'd love anyone to convince him that was plagiarism i mean he's so original right no no because well first of all that discussion was had back when sampling was done yes but you know i'm sure i could find musical theater sampling back to the dawn of musical theater which is not you know it's a recent art form so wouldn't go that far back but it's an ongoing conversation for people who write the words are the words and the combinations are the combinations and if you get to the point where you start to feel queasy about it that's when you stop yeah it's a good litmus test yeah so that's a great segue into talking about adaptation can't you want to sure so obviously you've had a number of your books adapted two you had one turned into a successful tv series and another is a box office hit as we said in your bio and i've heard you say that you believe in the transmogrification of story i do and yes and that your involvement ends at the back cover so i'd love to hear more about that and whether your views have evolved from maybe when admission came out to your adaptation of You Should Have Known into The Undoing. Well, I remember my first meeting with Karen Croner, who wrote the script of admission. And, you know, we were the same age. We were both feminists. We were both moms. And I really, I just loved her at first sight. And, you know, here we were meeting over lunch and there was this thing on the table between us, or this idea. And it was mine, but it, I was giving it to her. And then it was over for me. I mean, what she did with it had nothing to do with me. I certainly was not going to tell her what to do. I mean, I've never written a screenplay. I'm not a visual person in, in general. But the first 
first time I read her script, it really was terrible. It was awful. I mean, the, not that the script was terrible, but my experience of it was terrible. They'd moved a big plot twist way up to the front of the movie, which made perfect sense for the movie. Also, it was shunted a little bit in the direction of comedy because of Tina Fey's involvement. It was a different story. It was a different animal. And it was not a box office hit. I wish it had been, but <laughs> it's a very sweet film. And if I had known nothing about it and had no connection to it, I would have been really entertained by it. And it's got a lot of beautiful things in it. By the next time, by You Should Have Known, I was just like, whatever, you know, it's fine. It has nothing to do with me. I was much less emotionally enmeshed in what the final product was. Also, because, you know, David E. Kelly, I've been watching his work since I was young, and I have a lot of respect for what he does. And I was just so thrilled that he wanted to be involved with the project. So a lot less involved when I was told that this character who's barely in the book, Jonathan Sachs, is going to be played by Hugh Grant. Obviously, that was a clue that they were taking a very different tack. The TV show was really very much a whodunit, and my book is not that interested in who did it. It's pretty clear who did it, much more interested in why he did it, and more interested than anything else in her. The book is really about Grace and how her hubris of taking it upon herself to tell other people how to live their lives while her own is such a disaster. And also, you know, watching her rebuild her life after this decimation. So it really was a variation on a theme. And again, it was very entertaining. The performances were great. New York looked great. Right. I didn't know who did it until the last episode. I mean, they, oh, wow. they had shown us my family, they very kindly made the first five episodes available to us early in the pandemic. And we were all like watching on our screens together in different places. And that was a lovely thing, but they would not show us the sixth episode. And, you know, my husband and I were sitting here in the next room on our couch, watching it with everybody else and going, oh, yes. I I thought it was a different character who'd done it. Oh, that is amazing. And now you mentioned earlier that this is going to be adapted or hopefully adapted for TV. Yes. And this time I get to be on the writing team. So I'm very excited. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I'm looking forward to seeing how I can let go and engage at the same time. Yeah. 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 It's a tall order. It is. But you see, you have practice. You're probably better than most that try to sit in that seat. I don't know how good at it I'm going to be. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say that in public, but I can, I can obviously bring to the table a deep knowledge of the characters that may be not valuable at all. We'll have to wait and see. But I am very appreciative that I'm being offered this opportunity to take part in the adaptation. I I have adapted Joyce's The Dead with my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm I'm not a complete neophyte. (laughs) But then again, Joyce is not around to say, I don't like that. Right. But it's also, you're on both sides of this. You wrote the book and now you'll have to change it to make it suit. It's going to be a challenge. Yeah, that's exciting. Which also leads me perfectly to my next question. Some of our favorite creators that we feature on the podcast are women who refuse to have their career placed in one single box, whether that's different genres or different mediums. You obviously qualify as one of those creators. You've had six novels published already, uh, a middle grade reader, a collection of poetry, and as you just mentioned, you've created this immersive theatrical event called The Dead based on James Joyce's The Dead 1904. Do you think of yourself as one type of writer? And have you gotten pushback whenever you wanted to do something different, like even this now taking on TV? 
Push back, no. I am no longer a poet. I stopped being a poet in the 1980s. The book that I published was published in 1988. I'm well out of that, especially since I'm married to a poet and I think one per household is is all the you limit. get. <laughs> um, the middle grade reader, I wrote in hopes that it would open as sort of another avenue of books for me, but it was, you know, not a success. So I, I never did it again. I think I'm kind of a one trick pony in terms of the books that I'm going to write, but I'm a huge theater nerd. I love theater. I go to theater all the time. And I had this idea for an immersive interpretation of Joyce's The Dead that would involve the audience attending this party with the characters and eating dinner with them and following them around. And I've seen a lot of bad immersive theater where you as an audience member are sort of not sure why you're there and what your role is. In this production, you know who you are. You're a guest at the party and you're sort of watching people dance and sing and play instruments and eating dinner with them and then following them into the bedroom at the end of the night, which is what mm-hmm. happens at the end of the dead. I mean, having had this great idea, I tried to give it away. I mean, I tried to sort of offer it to all the theater people I knew. And everybody <laughs> said, oh, that's a great idea. You should do that. I'm like, no, I'm a novelist. <laughs> but um, my sister had always wanted to produce theater. And so I said to her, let's just try to do this. And we started to talk about it. And <laughs> this really is, probably doesn't reflect all that well in me, but people start to say, hey, that's an interesting idea. Who's doing the script or where's the script or can I read the script? And I was like, I guess I better put together a script. Luckily, I had this Joyce expert in the next room who couldn't really refuse me because he's married to me. (laughs) And we just did it together. We just kind of knocked it together. And I mean, my contribution was really the macro idea, what it would look like to follow these characters around and have them speak to one another. What my husband brought to it was this deep, deep understanding of what's happening. And I don't know how familiar you are with the dead, but I mean, it's a story in which, as they say, nothing happens and everything happens. So, I mean, it's a party that takes place on the Feast of the Epiphany in 1904 in Dublin. And these people are listening to music and they're arguing about politics and they're arguing about religion. And one character gets drunk and through it all, you're watching this uh, couple kind of have a crisis. They have a marital crisis and it ends with the husband sort of gazing out the window into the snow and feeling that he's basically lost the thread of his own life, that he's lost. He comes in arrogant and pompous and conceited, and he ends the night absolutely destroyed. So, you know, it's a great novella, and it's been adapted many times before, but never in a way where you get to sit down with the characters and eat this famous meal and hear the music and follow them into their bedroom at the end of the night. So it was a great success, and we loved doing it. We did it for three years, and, you know, if circumstances improve, we would love to do it again. Right. Are you oh, wow. are you in New York? Are you yes. based in New York? Yes, yes, so? yes. There we go. You can come to it. I would love that. That's right. Do you ever feel, you don't feel, or do you, and you just get over it, you feel this resistance like, oh, I can't do that because I'm a novelist. Constantly. Always. Always. Well, I I don't don't just feel it with things that are not novels. I feel it with novels. Oh, I can't do, oh, I can't do that is the refrain of our lives. And it is our job as women to say, 
shut the fuck up or just shut up long enough for me to do it. And then you can go back to telling me that I can't do it. I mean, this is an issue for every woman writer I know, and maybe even for some of the men, although they would never admit to it. Uh Right. right. And that's probably the difference. If there are men that feel it, it doesn't stop them. And for women, it does. It stops them. Tilly Olson was saying this back in the, the 1950s when she wrote Silences. But, you know, life is hard. We have a lot of responsibilities. Some There are some days that just getting through the day is a big accomplishment. So the idea of writing a novel is so huge and terrifying that, you know, it's not at all surprising that it doesn't it's, get done. And how do you push through? You just tell that voice to shut up and yeah, you say, move on. Just You're give like, me a few hours. <laughs> Then you can go back to telling me that I can't do it. Right. Um, you know. And it gets done little by little. It does. It does. It's yeah. like, you know, who's the guy who ate an airplane? You know, do it tiny little pieces of it. Yeah. It's a really disgusting analogy. And you have this voice even though you've published oh, six sure. novels. I think Absolutely. if I've got the count right. Yeah. Absolutely. Every time. I've written seven novels plus several that were not published. And I am not one of these writers who loves writing. I love, as another writer once said, I love having written. But there have been a couple of novels in my life, this one, the plot, and you should have known in particular that were so propulsive that it was really like the experience of writing them was just a compulsion to get it out. And that's what this was. And I, and as I said in the afterward to the plot, I mean, I, I was so fortunate because a year ago in the winter and spring, I was furious. I was scared, really scared. And it was a, just a saving grace for me that I had a project, a deadline, and like the story in the plot, a book that really just needed to be written. And I got up every day with work to do. And God, if I hadn't had that, I, I think it would have been really, I mean, psychically quite disastrous. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. fun, but it, right. was, it could have been a lot worse. Kate and I are both lawyers, writers, so we have deep type A control issues. <laughs> and we try Can to imagine where this is going. All right. Yeah, to no. pretend, <laughs> we try to pretend that we're not in control of every single thing by sometimes reading our horoscope and thinking about astrology. We know that you, or we think that you're a Taurus. Yes. I'm a Taurus. Yes. Which is also one of the signs that is least likely to believe in astrology because they're yeah, very I, I gra- don't believe in astrology. Yes, of ahead. course. Yeah. It's very <laughs> grounded, okay. practical, and realistic. But I was wondering as a writer more of the idea of there's some sort of magic or intuition or fate something that is involved in the process the universe, of yeah, getting you know. getting a book written getting a book published is there something of that nature that you do subscribe to actually you can read my complete thoughts on this in the plot because the whole sequence where jake talks about this compulsion to you know this magical idea of the story that needs to be told and if you don't tell it it goes to somebody else which has been written about in the past by elizabeth gilbert big magic big magic and when i read that i thought that that's exactly what i've always felt it's amazing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) that is literally the only magic that i believe in i'm not even sure it's magic but i mean i think i'm not sure that any of these ideas are unique but i don't believe anything happens for a reason i don't believe in god i don't believe in fate i don't believe you know i I could fill volumes with all the things i don't believe okay But I do believe that if you're fortunate enough to have the kind of idea that I got with this novel, that you are an asshole if you do not do right by it. And that's what I tried to do. I like that. So I feel like uh, you were hoping for something more. No, 
I, oh no, you're a tourist. We we yes, were, we we were, were not like she said, we were assuming it. this. Right. Expecting yeah. anything else. I wanted to just circle back real quick to being a writer and the struggle of it. And it's not about him as a writer, really, even though it, it can really be enjoyed on the thriller level, the psychological suspense and what's going to happen. And really, it's about his secret. It's not so much about yeah. his writing process. But if you are a writer, like I am, you do enjoy it on a meta level as well. Yes. You're like, okay, this is, I get it. I get this. And this is very early on in the book when Evan Parker comes to Jacob and says he's thinking about writing under a pen name. And Jake thinks to himself, it was all he could do not to laugh. The lives of the vast majority of authors being far more private than they likely wished. Yeah. Maybe Stephen King or John Grisham got approached in the supermarket by a quavering person extending pen and paper, but for most writers, even reliably published and actually self-supporting writers, the privacy was thunderous. Yeah! Which is so <laughs> I great. That. I love yeah. that line. Yeah, uh, and there true. are so many bits of that throughout the book that you don't need to get or appreciate or care about or laugh at to enjoy this book. You can imagine I was reading every book about plagiarism and appropriation that I, well, I've always read those books anyway, because I find them interesting. But there was this one book, I've mercifully forgotten the title because I'm about to say unkind things about it. But it's about a famous author who's got writer's block. I believe this novel was published in, was very successful in Europe but not so successful in America. And I, like I said, I have forgotten the name, but it's, I started to read it and he's a famous novelist with a private jet and I'm like a oh, box gosh. at the opera. And I'm like, right. already no. it's fantasy. Yes. You know, yes, I, exactly. I cannot invest in any sense of reality with this character right. or this story right. because there's no one like that. I mean, I doubt Stephen King has got a private right. jet. I'm right. sure right. he has no private jet. Right, right. So that's not who we are. And that's right. <laughs> well, you're all celebrities to us. Oh, we, yes. We, yes. But, so they have that status to us, but we recognize what you're saying to, to most people. Yeah, that's not exactly. The privacy is thunderous. Privacy is thunderous. Perfect. So good. Perfect so, good. so we just want to end I want to, about what's coming next. We know your eighth novel, The Latecomers, is already submitted and slated for publication next year. Can you tell us anything or for a little Well, it is, it is the book I was working on and put aside to write the plot. So I am now returning to Mm -hmm. it. I'm doing some work on it and I have a deadline of July and I believe it's going to be published next spring. But I should say that I've always written kind of on both sides of the thriller literary fiction line. This one is not a thriller. I don't think it's anybody would call it a thriller. It's a, I think of it as my John Irving novel. It's a kind of big chewy novel about a crazy family in Brooklyn. And when I'm done, I'm going to be very, very happy with it. I'm working on it right now. So I wouldn't want anybody to say, oh, there's another twisty thriller coming. It's a different kind of novel. It's, it's going to be a lot closer to my novel The White Rose and and there are some people who, for whom that was the book of mine that they really like and they don't they're not interested in this thriller business so very different kind of book but I imagine it's still going to have your sensibility and it this will, is as yes. propulsive as this as the plot was what I was really so taken by were your insights and your way of the voice and the whole story. So even if it's not a thriller per se, I can imagine that it will have the same appeal to anyone who loves your books. I hope so. I mean, I think we as writers, we get very caught up in this kind of thing. Like what shelf is the book on in the bookstore? Listen, I'm just lucky to be in the bookstore. There are 
yeah. decades in there where I would go into bookstores and they I wouldn't be there. So it'll oh, just be great yeah. to be there. Yes. 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 Well, the plot, easily my favorite book this year so far. I imagine it will be at the end of the year as well. Just Aww. so special and exceptional. Thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to you for inviting me. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like... Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women this has been pop fiction women with corinne and kate if you enjoyed this show please tell the complicated women in your life and the men who love them yes tell them to listen and then to follow on spotify or review and subscribe on apple podcasts and of course share on social media tag us with your favorite books TV shows and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated. <laughs>